my encounter with uh, Zach's Mdas connection with Yvonne Vera happened in Grahamstown uh, in South Africa. Um, there is a stash of letters between Yvonne Vera and the colorist in Harare. Um, and uh, Yvonne was very excited that uh, Zex agreed to write uh, a blurb for her last novel, uh, The Stone Virgins. Um, so there was kind of a back and forth with this colorist in Harare. Um, and uh, it just remained in my memory. Um, and so that became one of the prompts for me to invite you to come. Um, but yeah, but I also read your book, Sometimes There's a Void as a kind of guide to try and map my way uh, through the, US, uh, the United States, kind of just looking at how you have made it home and um, used it to interact with South Africa. So, yeah, so we will, we will mostly be talking about the novel. Uh, unfortunately, there are no hard copies available. We'll talk a little bit about that or how available it is currently. Um, so maybe I'll give you, you can give brief remarks or I can, I have a written biography of you, so maybe I'll okay. just, for those who don't know Zex Mda, I'll just yes. read. Um, uh, well, uh, my brief remarks are just to thank you uh, and everybody else. Uh, everybody for coming, and you and, and your team for inviting me. Uh, I was particularly happy, you know, to hear that uh, you are having these sessions in honor of, of Yvonne Vera, who was indeed a very close friend of mine, uh, uh, Yvonne, to the extent that uh, you know, we exchanged visits and so on. And even when I wrote my novel, she plays, no, no, not that one, The Heart of Redness. The, the Heart of, of Redness. There's a lot of her influence there. And also, you know, uh, she read it as I was working on it. And to the extent that, in fact, she called it our book. You see, so right up to now, I, I'm, I'm very sentimental about that, that novel, particularly because it reminds me very much of Yvonne Vera. So anyway, I, I, I was not even aware that I wrote a blurb for, for her book. Um, well, I had forgotten that. Um, anyway, I'm glad then that 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 that, that blab uh, made you invite me here, and and I'll be guided by by I mean it's supposed to be a conversation, so I'll be guided by you you lead me I'll be guided by by your questions. I just want to explain about uh, you know hard copies and so on. All my books, I make it a point that. They are first published in South Africa before I must get the rights from South Africa. You see? So it's the same case then with the Zulus of New York. It was published in South Africa in March, uh, um, and it's, it's available there, of course, 
in hard copy. But for other countries, including the United States, we are still negotiating deals with publishers there to see which publisher we are going to give the rights to. to. So it's only, it, it will only be available quite a few months from now. But it is indeed available as an e-book. So you can get it on, on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Sony, um, uh, Google Play, and so on, or everywhere where they sell e-books. So what we are really introducing to you here is the e-book then, because that, that's the only one that's available to you at this point. Um, I'm quite intrigued with that decision to start uh, from publishing in South Africa, to, or at least their books uh, start by appearing in North America or in Europe before they arrived in Africa or if they arrive at all. So like, maybe can you talk a little bit more about the, the decision to start uh, to make all your books available in South Africa first before uh, they move into the world? Well, um, maybe it's because I've always been published in South Africa. I mean, right from the beginning, with my very, very first book, uh, which I'll sing for the Fatherland and other plays. It was a collection of plays. It was published by, Ra by Raven Press, I think in the, in the 70s or so. And since then, because, I mean, the publishing industry is, in South Africa is quite vibrant. There's a lot of publishing that is happening there. You know, some by multinational corporations such as Penguin, Random House, and so on, but also by local publishers, um, small publishers and others, you know, publishers, you know, black-owned that started small but are now very big. And generally, I mean, my primary market is in South Africa, in fact. That's where the bulk of my readership is. Even when I write these books, I'm really, first and foremost, writing them for South Africa. And they are about South Africa. Well, those that, because I do write books, you know, set in America as well. But even those, by the way, I'm, I'm writing them for South Africa too, even those that, that are set here. Uh, the idea to share with my people that, oh, look, this is what is happening where I am. You, you, you see that. But then, of course, since, you know, I'm targeting them to that particular audience, but they do become universal in that the universal springs from the particular, you know. You direct it to that particular audience but if it is about people, it's about human beings and their conflicts, then it will resonate in other countries as well. But the other reason, of course, is a, is a very commercial one. I publish there because it's important for me that publishers elsewhere should buy their rights from, it's all my editing should be done in South Africa and publishers elsewhere should buy the whole package from, 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 from South Africa. 
maybe let's turn, uh, let's just sort of have a sense of the background behind the writing of the book. So the Zulus of New York um, yes. is set between 1885 and 1893, almost an eight-year period. Um, so it's a book informed by historical events. Can you talk a little bit about how his, uh, history becomes a muse for you or inspires some of your fiction? Well, I, I have written quite a few historical novels. Not all my books are, are, are his, historical novels, but quite a few of them. Uh, the reason being that, uh, well, I do love history. And I think history, especially in the South African situation, but everywhere, but then since I'm talking about that audience then, is very important land in South Africa is, is written from the perspective of the colonial master. And the main actors, you see, are the colonial masters. The, the ordinary people, the, the oppressed, become beat players in the grand narratives of, of the oppressors, you see. The history that I write looks at those situations from a different perspective, from the perspective of the oppressed, of the marginalized, you see. Because in my view, the marginalized, in fact, are, they make then, for instance, in a novel like this one, which is about Africans who were taken from Africa in the late 1800s and, you know, went to England as performers in the human circuses or human zoos of the day, and then from London to, to New York. Now, you go to any book or you go to Google and so on, you punch in the great Farini. There will be a whole history of Farini, who he was, who his mother was, and so on. Farini was an impresario who went to Africa and got a few Khoi Khoi people, Zulu people, right up to, you know, south, I mean, in Sudan, and uh, brought them to America, where they became part of the human zoo, where they were displayed as part of curiosities and oddities. You see? But we do not know the history of those individual people. We know the history of the master, the great Farine. So it was important for me then to look at this story of human oddities and curiosities, to look at it rather than from the impresarios and the masters who owned these people, to look at the story from the perspective of the, the human curiosity itself, as they were called, or the oddities, you see. Namely, the Africans were kept in cages and then 
white people would come to ogle at them and so on. As you might know, some of you, the story of uh, Ota, uh, was it Benga? Ota Benga, you know, who was kept in a zoo, you know, the, 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 the Bronx Zoo, with monkeys there, and then people would go and see. So Ota Benga was not a, an exception. This was during the age when it was quite common in New York to have otter bangers, you know. Some even in cages that would travel from place to place and then people would come and look at his, mostly perhaps it would be the Batwa people who, or the Bhutti people who are called pygmies, uh, by, by colonialists, or, or because of their height, you know, they're short and tiny, so they would be displayed in cages, sometimes with monkeys, or it would be the, the, the Dinka people and, and the Nuer people from South Sudan, who are very tall and very dark and very, you know. So those became oddities that, you know, uh, audiences would come just to watch. Zulus, of course, became very popular because of a battle which was known as the Battle of Isanjuana. When the king of the Zulus, called Kachwayo, defeated the British at that particular battle. And the Zulus then became very warriors, uh, these so-called savages, who actually defeated the greatest army in the world. Which is why then the great Farini would go to South Africa to get some of these people, and they became dancers in London, and then dancers also in the United States. During that period, there were many other Zulus in America. Almost every street corner in New York had a Zulu. And most of those Zulus were, were, were fake Zulus, false Zulus. Mainly African-American or Irish people, white, who'd paint themselves black and so on, and who'd perform whatever dances uh, those, were, I mean, were deemed to be, you know, Zulu dances. So, I mean, Baskas, you know, Zulus were very popular with Baskas, you see. In my story, I look at a particular character who lives, you know, KwaZulu, uh, because of his problems with women and so on, and is driven away, you know, from, from his town, goes to Cape Town to work there, and then is discovered by Mr. Farini, comes to, goes to London and then to New York, where he falls in love with another human oddity who's kept in a cage, a Dinka woman. So generally, that, that's, that's what, you know, the story looks at. Hmm. Um, I think taking you backwards, at what point did you, like, when, when did you decide to focus on this story? Like, New York is a, an interesting setting. So much is happening in the U.S. at the moment. And then we, we, we are forced to reflect back on the problematic history of yeah. Africans in, in, in New York, in the U.S., so, right. Yeah. At what point did you start working on the on the novel, and why is it important for the novel to come out in 2019? 
Well, um, the story came to me quite by accident, in fact. It came, well, two things were, were happening at the time. The first one, I was involved in a movement to repatriate African art, which is in Europe and in America as well, most of which was looted from, from Africa, um, from Nigeria, you know, from great civilizations, from Benin, for instance. I the whole story of how a violence art was looted, you know, terrible violence used, you know, there to, to, to grab this art. And a lot of it is in, in museums in England, and some of it is here. You see, it's, it's in New York here. So I've been involved in this movement, but then in South Africa also, the art that we are repatriating is quite contemporary. A lot of our artists, you know, had their work, especially those who, who, who created art during apartheid. Um, and then a lot of their art then, you know, a lot of it, of course, was not looted in the sense of the, you know, the ancient art that, that, that I'm talking about. Many people, you know, got the, this art sometimes very cheaply and then took it overseas. So we are able to get a lot of this art and many people are quite willing to donate it back, but others, we, we have to buy it back to South Africa, you see. So it was fascinating for me now to be able to, to, to get back, you know, to repatriate some of this heritage. But then a lot of this heritage also exists in the form of human beings, you see. For instance, you might remember the story of Sarah Bartman, who, though she died 200 years ago, was kept in a container somewhere in a bottle somewhere in France, you know, it's a museum there. And it was only in 2002, because for many years we've been fighting to get those remains, those human remains of Sarah, which had been sitting there for 12. So it was in 2010, was buried in the, it was repatriated back to South Africa and was buried in the Eastern Cape, you see, Sarah Bartman. Then I discovered these Zulus then, just by chance, when a friend of mine who's a scholar, an academic uh, at Howard University, uh, a man by the name of Robert Edgar, Bob Edgar, wrote a paper on the Zulus in New York in the 1800s. Well, a lot of the Zulus he was writing about were doing different things. There were some, like the ones I'm writing about, who were here as performers, who had been imported you know, to dance and recreate their savagery through, through, through dance. But there were others who were here, you know, who, as scholars, you know, John Langalibale Ledube, for instance. I do mention him. He does feature in my novel as well. And others who were here for different reasons, you see. So the paper then writes about that period and the Zulus who were here. And of course, 
the fetishizing and the lionizing of the Zulu-ness for, for commercial exploitation, which was happening at the time through a lot of you know, the African-Americans then who became Zulus for the purpose of performance, and the white people, most of whom were Irish, who also uh, performed as Zulus. So the, the, the paper then theorized a lot of that. But my interest was just a fascination with these Zulus. And the fact that we, unlike Sarah Bartman, you see, who at least we could take back part of her, you know, bits and pieces of her flesh to, to rebury. Those Zulus, we, we do not know where they are. We have no idea who they were. We only know their nicknames that they were given by the white masters here, you see. We know nothing about them except the fact that there were Zulus. Some of them might not even have been Zulus. They were just black people from Africa. You, you see them. But for me then, it was important to repatriate, since I can't repatriate that heritage, you know, in the same way that I could repatriate Sarah Bartman, then at least I could repatriate the memory. You see that? So that is how then I decided to write the book. After discovering the stodemics out there, I, I, I wanted a story that's going to be read by you and everybody else, you see. Oh. And I wanted to humanize these people who had been dehumanized, you see, to humanize them, uh, which, you know, fiction is very, very effective when you want to humanize uh, people. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting to be to read the book and have uh, like this sensibility of the of these African men and women uh, in New York in the late 1800s. Um, but I was I'm curious how much time you spent in New York City yourself meditating or, or during the process of writing this book. Did you at any point come to the city? to sort of walk around, uh, walk through some of the landmarks that you talk about, like uh, Broadway, for example? Yes, although, of course, I mean, those are my landmarks anyway. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of work in this city. But of course, the city I'm writing about here is a different city from this New York that you know today, you see. There's no longer Five Points, for instance, which was a whole huge slum, slum area in that area where uh, NYU is and so on around them. You know, so many things have changed. So it's important anyway that, you know, there's always very good archival material, you know, throughout, throughout this city to the extent that one is able to reconstruct it and reconstruct, you know, 1880. In New York City in 1880, because there are, there are pictures, you know, there are maps, um, and there are stories, and so on. And a lot of that you can do without even being here, you know. Fortunately, you can be anywhere and still reconstruct uh, New York City. But of course, 
it was important for me also to see what changes have happened since then. You know, some of the places are not identifiable anymore. Um, you mentioned uh, John Dube, who uh, was a founding president of the South African Native National Congress, so which later became the ANC. The ANC, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I am curious about that, considering obviously that next week, next Tuesday, uh, South Africa goes to the polls. Yes. Um, kind of just a reflection of like this juxtapositioning of like some of these figures like John Dube in New York oh. at the same time as uh, MP in, in, in the novel. Uh, yes. Maybe can you talk a little bit about how like uh, the movements of some of these intellectual, political um, right. Africans who were also in New York at the same time? Yes. Well, it was important for me, of course, well, I mean, John Nangalibele Dube appears in this novel because he was there in the real life history that I'm writing about. But it, is also it was also important for me to show that the Zulus were not here, either the genuine ones and the four Zulus. I mean, there were not only those who were performers and doing all sorts of as well, who were here for different uh, uh, reasons. Um, a lot of them, such as John Dube, uh, Dr. Nombula, for instance, who came here to school and, and then, you know, did some work here uh, as writers and so on, you see. But in my story, the direction that my main character, the one whose stories we have been, the story we have been following, up to this point, you know, get some influence from this group of other Zulus, you know, um, about the, why it is necessary to go back home and contribute to the freedom struggle that was already taking place then, you see. Okay. Um, so we are, we are sitting in a room that is uh, photography from Ivory Coast uh, by mm. Paul Kojo. Um, one of the interesting things yes. about the Zulus of New York is that it also kind of evokes photography. So there's a chapter about okay. about photographs and photography. Yes. And I, yeah, I, I think for you, you have sometimes described yourself as first and foremost a painter. Uh, yes. Before you, before you are a writer, um, and so I, I wanted us to reflect on that, considering the setting of our conversation yes. and art fair. Uh, like hmm. maybe talk a little bit about the relationship of different art forms uh, in your work uh, and right. in your practice. Well, I mean, I'm first and foremost a painter, really. Writing came only later, and overtook painting because. I got better known as a writer. <laughs> but I, I continued to, to paint nevertheless. And uh, of late, well, of late, meaning in the past two or three years, painting has become my main activity. In other words, what you would call my day job. And then writing is a sideline or, or something like that, you see. But then I, I practice those at the same time, really. 
You see, my, 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 my situation is that I have a computer in front of me, my small desk, desk the computer, and so on. And behind me, I have my easel and my paints. So what normally happens, I'll sit and write, you know, a few passages, a few paragraphs, and so on. And then something that is happening there, a great idea will, will, will hit me, and then I swivel, because it has to be a swivel chair. I swivel and then turn to the easel, and then I paint, you see. So that, that's swiveling art, paint, write, you know, uh, interchangeably like that. A lot of, you know, what I paint may be informed by what I write. Sometimes what I write is informed by, by what, what I paint. You see, so there's, there's a very, there's a symbiotic relationship between my art and, um, and my writing. Why, why has your, your painting... Uh... Why is it not here? I'm asking you. Yes, that's... Uh... Yes, eh? <laughs> I want to know, <laughs> I want to know from you guys, why is my art not here? <laughs> you see that? <laughs> Uh, hey. you, you, you preempted me because I was going to ask exactly the same thing. But uh, yes. yeah, but um, yeah. How how does your painting move? Like you, we know how your books move. Yeah. We yeah, we are talking about your, one of your books. But yeah. how how do how do your paintings move in the world? What way do you exhibit? How do okay. you share your paintings? Well, I share my paintings mostly through local galleries. For instance, in Columbus, Ohio, but also in South Africa, um, in Europe, in Barcelona, in, uh, in, in, in Sweden, Stockholm. You see, in the past few years, I spent a lot of time, I wasted a lot of time writing and very little time painting. To the extent that then, where I had a permanent exhibition at the Culture Husset, it happened that, you know, I couldn't fill in the empty spaces and it had to be given to somebody else. Just an example on, on writing. But I'm sure now that art is my day job. Uh, I'm hoping that, especially in South Africa, um, you'll see more of, of, of my work there. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to read... Uh, uh, I'm hoping at some stage, well, you're yes. going to read that. You are also give, you're going to also give the chance to, to the people here to, to have some question or comment? Yes. Okay, yes. no, that, yes. that, that's, that's great. Um, I think still keeping in, keeping in with that in, within that vein. Um, yes. So, uh, Zexim shared uh, the same New York publisher with Yvonne Vera. So, uh, Farah okay. Strauss and Giro. And Giro, yeah. Um, and by the way, for me to publish with Farah Strauss and Giro, it was through Yvonne Vera. You see. I would, I would not even have known of Farah Strauss and, 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 and if it was not for you one there. Anyway, go ahead then with. Um, yeah, I'm just going to read the blurb that um, 
that he wrote for the Stone Virgins, which was the last novel that Yvonne Vera published oh, before, before she died. Um, because in a way, it also connects kind of this relationship between painting and writing. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if Yvonne Vera was a painter herself, but she, obviously she was, in, she was very invested in visual art. Uh, she actually managed an art gallery in Bulawayo. Yes. Um, so the the bleb just uh, the bleb reads the stone virgins is Vera at her lyrical best. Her affinity for visual art comes through her, through in her writing. Her descriptions are painted by tens in bold palette knife applied strokes and delicate pastel colors. The novel the novel exudes compassion, tolerance, and sensitivity. The three hallmarks of great writing. Post-colonial African literature is led by Zimbabwean writers, and she's, she is by far the most imaginative and original voice among them. Um, I mean, you, this blurb is certainly write by, written by a painter, uh, huh. sort of you yeah, describing the brush strokes, the instruments of painting, um, how, much, how much of your own writing um, hmm. Uh, feels like painting. Like how do how do you construct these uh, descriptions, places, settings? Uh, well, I mean, sometimes it's not even it's it's not even something that I consciously do. You see, but uh, I've been told that. Uh, my art does, I mean, my, my writing does tend to be, to be visual. And also, uh, I use a lot of color in my writing, you see. Color is, is, is very crucial, you know. And that, that's just something that I, I think comes from a painterly uh, life. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't, yeah, you, you talked about the separation between uh, writing and painting. There's something. Oh, my goodness. Um, you say it. You've in been a, digging all, all, all the dirt now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you said, when I'm in South Africa, I do not teach, I work as a full time writer. Okay. So, like, I'm, I'm really interested uh, in your relationship with South Africa. Huh. Um, do you still go back to South Africa to write? I know that parts of this book were finished when you were at uh, Stellenbosch University. Yes. Um, so do you sort of separate, like, your creative production between the U.S. and uh, South Africa? Well, uh, I'm able to write anywhere. In, in other words, I, I'm quite different from many writers who need seclusion. You know, who will go maybe to a writer's colony somewhere or something like that. I, I, I can write here. I mean, you know, I, I write uh, at home in the kitchen as I cook for my children. And then an idea comes, I jot it down and, and write and so on. I write at the train station, at the airport in the plain. I do a lot of writing in South Africa, yes. Why? Because there's other work that I do there. And therefore, I go to South Africa almost every month. Just for a few days, maybe 
for a week at a time, and then I'm, I'm back in Ohio. Ohio is, is a second home, you know, as well, because that's where my family is, that's where my wife and my kids, uh, you know, uh, are. But also that's where I do a lot of my painting. I do a, a lot of painting there, why? Because I have room there, I have a studio bothers me there. In South Africa, I do write there as well sometimes, um, but also life becomes very hectic when I'm in South Africa because I don't own myself anymore when I'm there. I have to do other things to contribute, you know, to the well-being of the people. Uh, so I have to be, I'm invited here and there and so on. So that, that's always the problem. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Ohio. Uh, the book closes with Ohio, uh, or at least um, one of the characters ends up um, in an asylum in Ohio. Yeah. Um, was that a deliberate uh, connection with where you are currently uh, placed, or was also kind of uh, extending the map of uh, sort of human exploitation that was happening uh, in the same period? That oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because in Athens, Ohio, there was what was known as an as asylum of the insane, a, a, a mental asylum, which became very famous uh, in the 1800s. And most of its inmates were women. A lot of them were there, you know, for things that today, I mean, would be deemed very, very strange, really. You know, they were there for something which was known as melancholia, you know, which, of course, when you look at it today, you know, has elements maybe of depression and things like with their month. They were there, you know, for things that had to do with their monthly uh, menstruation, you see, if there was any problem with that, it was deemed to be a mental problem, they would be locked up there, you know. And when you go to that asylum, you find a very huge graveyard with headstones, you see. Many of these women died there and were buried there, you see. I've written a novel, in fact, uh, called Sion, which also looks at that mental uh, hospital and, and that whole situation there. So, since my character, without spoiling the, the story, you know, has to go to a mental asylum, I'm sure there might have been many others, you know. I took her to that one because that's the one I'd already studied. That's the one I knew about a lot. You see? So uh, I would then be able to give it a lot of credibility. I mean, hey, it, it is something I know already, something I would not have to, to research and so on. Um, yeah, I might ask you to read from the book. I have a copy myself. I know it might be difficult because it's not your copy, so uh. you might need to, re to orient yourself. Um, 
But before I ask you to read a passage or a page from the book, um, one of my friends uh, in South Africa sent me a message and said, I'm so envious that you are going to be talking to my social media dad. Oh, oh my um, goodness. Who, who's that one? Eh? Social uh, media dad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but you yeah you spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, the, your book, uh, one uh, f I think in the Ocean Marathon, someone was uh, participated in in a marathon in South Africa uh, and decided to spend the last part of the race reading the Zulus of New York. Yes. Um, how, uh, what kind of conversation has uh, come out of that? I know that. Uh, the 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 athlete wanted to promote uh, culture of reading yes. and sort of used your book as a prompt. Yes, um, yes. Has there been conversations around the book or interest around the book? Well, I mean, there there are always conversations. First of all, I'm on social media, mostly Twitter, mostly to communicate with my readers. You see, uh, I find that uh, it gives my readers access to me. They are able to comment about my work, my life, and so on. And of course, I always make it a point to respond to, to every one of them. You see? Um, to the extent that, in some instances, they have even contributed to my own writing. I remember when I was writing a novel called Rachel's Blue, for instance which is set in, uh, in Athens, Ohio. I tweet, when I got the very first idea of writing that, I, I tweeted about that. You see that? And then people responded with ideas and so on, um, some of which were ideas that we debated about and they ended in my, in my novel, even the Zulus of New York, as I was writing it, or even before I, I wrote it, I, I, I did mention that I'm going to have this character who was abused and then, you know, was infected with, with syphilis and so on. And then my Twitter people wrote back, you know, I remember one message, you see, um, from uh, Hani, Hani Makwakwa, who's one of... Uh, yeah, she's the one. Oh, she, she's the one, eh? Who then wrote and said, please, Dada, give her dignity. So I remember, I remembered those words as I was writing the novel that, by all means, I've got to give this woman dignity. You see that? Hence, my bringing in the Dinka character, who was very crucial because in their religion, the Jiang people, as they call themselves, they don't call themselves Dinka, the Jiang people, dignity is a core value. From the time a child is born to this child, the initiation, the whole process of initiation from manhood, from boyhood to manhood, from girlhood to to womanhood, is a process of attaining dignity. You see that? And amongst those people, dignity itself is actually has its own aesthetic. That's why in my book I write of the aesthetic of, 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 of dignity. 
Now, if this woman had not you know, emphasized that, please give this woman dignity. And this was ringing in my head. I would not have had this Dinka character there. Because the Dinka character is there mostly because in her philosophy and her religion, dignity is a core value. So as to bring my character's dignity then, I had to throw it from some place in Africa where dignity exists, you know, as a value that, you know, people aim to attain. Mm. Um, I think I will, I will invite you to just give people a test of the book. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you know where to jump, like, or we can just pick a random page. And, oh my uh, goodness. <laughs> I, I was praying that you won't ask me to read. That, that's not my favorite thing to do. Yeah, just a short passage, um, and then we'll invite, uh, we'll invite people to ask questions or give commentary uh, on, yeah, on their own reading of, uh, readings of your work or a relationship with your work. Or, or, or anything else. Or, yes. Or they can talk about your paintings that they have collected. At least there's one collector of my Oh, there are two collectors of my paintings here. There's Jerry. Jerry, you do have one or two of my paintings. And there's my sister there, Kathy. Yes, sir. Well, I'll just choose at random then, as, as, as you say. Oh, I have to hold this, I suppose. This is chapter four, The Dinka Princess. When MP sees her for the first time, she is in a cage, perched on a backboard wagon. She wears a papier mache crown painted gold and a patchwork cape of mink, otter, and cordiac fur. She is pitch black, blacker than any night, almost purple in her blackness. She is gangly, her legs twisted awkwardly to fit in the small cage. She squats uncomfortably her head resting between her knees and her spindly arms wrapped tightly around them. Her fair coat covers her whole body and most of the floor of the cage so that one is unable to say what dress or shoes she's wearing, if any. He reads on a carved wooden cartouche attached to the cage that she's from the Dinka tribe in Sudan. She's called Dinky the Dinka Princess and is owned by Monsieur Duval, proprietor of Duval Ethnological Expositions. He would have looked and moved on, but she smiles at him. Just vaguely, that is enough. He freezes and gazes. 
at her. She averts her eyes slightly, and once more the empty stare takes over. He has been in Madison Square Park before, scouting for respectable performance venues outside the Tenderleon district, but has never seen the Dinka Princess. Only cages with pygmies, individual men and women, or family units, or some exotic creatures of the African and South American jungles, mandrills and drills, mamasets and uh, mustached emperor tamarins, the latter in meshed wire cages instead of behind iron bars. The Dinka princess must be a new acquisition unless she has been transferred from a human zoo in another part of the city. There are no pygmies today, so Dinky is hogging all the attention. She's not doing anything, just sitting there with fiery red lips, thick and slightly pursed. Yet spectators are particularly engrossed in her as if she's performing a hypnotic dance. Their children are fascinated by the mandrels and other simians. Men push MP to the side to get a better view of the caged woman. He's invisible. He's the only black person in this crowd, the only one not in bondage. He tries to resist but the human tide is too powerful for him, and soon he finds himself at the edge of the crowd. Nonetheless, his steadfast gaze does not shift from the woman. Her gaze does not shift from the emptiness in the sky. A few moments later, it does. Her eyes seem to be searching in the crowd and land on the spot where MP had previously been standing. They show some disappointment that he has been mis replaced by an old Koja in an equally old British police visor cap. The eyes sweep the crowd once more and brighten when they land on MP, meeting his and locking them in an unblinking stare. MP thinks he detects a smile, a slight one, perhaps a suggestion of one. He smiles back, a really broad one. She well, I'll, I'll just end there for now. Yeah. Um. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the brief reading and introduction to Dinky, uh, one of the main characters in the book. Zeks uh, Mda, uh, if you have any questions, comments, uh, anything that you want to say to him, um, I think he'll be happy to engage. Thank you, uh, uh, 
that is Eximta. That was a very uh, interesting uh, glimpse into your thought processes. I have one question I wanted to, or a comment rather, um, about um, your creative uh, spaces that you said between Ohio and South Africa. And then, um, do you think, in terms of appreciation, I'm sure you know we appreciate you very well in South Africa, but in terms of um, why um, we don't appreciate most artists in South Africa, and you sit, tend to have more sort of freedom and space when you come to Ohio, can you maybe just comment on that, or is it just in general in terms of literature that we don't, another, uh, we don't have a strong culture of literature and reading in South Africa. Um, yeah, that was one question. Well, you know, I've often heard from South Africans that, oh, South African artists are not appreciated in South Africa until they go abroad and then they are recognized there. Only then do they get some recognition in South Africa. But I would be lying if I were to say I share that experience. Not that I'm disputing that. In fact, I know quite a few examples of a lot of artists, you know, who are wonderful, who are not really appreciated at home. But then when they get accolades outside, only then do we begin to recognize them. So that is a fact, I mean, it does happen. But it is not my experience. For me, I would be lying if I, I mean, in South Africa, I am highly, highly celebrated. Um, both by the people, the readers, and the various institutions of art and culture, and so on. In fact, I think I'm read in South Africa more than anywhere else, even more than here, where you know my books are published by you know some of the most prestigious publishers, such as the publisher you are talking about, Farah Strauss and Giro. You, you see, so I'm quite happy and satisfied. You know the way my work is received in South Africa. Sometimes I even wish that in other countries it was received as well as it was or it is in South Africa. For me, working uh, in Ohio is really not because I'm recognized there better than over there. It just so happened that I went to live there during the days of apartheid almost 40 years ago because I first went to Athens, Ohio as a student in 1981. And then I did my master's there in, uh, in theater and in mass communication and so on. You see, then after that I taught there and then I left, then went to other places and then returned there. It just so happened that I've lived there for so many years, so much that I am also, in, in as much as I'm rooted elsewhere, I'm rooted there as well. And I have a family there, you know, which grew up there and they, they know no other home besides that one. Uh, so those are the only reasons I go back to Ohio and, and work there. 
But as you can see, that so my heart is really in South Africa. That's why I have projects there, and I go there almost every month. I fly to South Africa, which is rather expensive. Well, not for me, but for those people who pay the bill for me to go there. You see? Uh, I'm not sure if I've answered your question. A, a part of it. <laughs> uh, part just of it. tell me the part that I, I didn't answer. No, about the, um, basically the culture of literature and appreciation of literature in South Africa. Uh, do you think it is... Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yes. Now, another myth in South Africa, by South Africans, black South Africans, they oh, you know, black people don't read. No. Actually, black people in South Africa read. And how I know this is because as a writer, I've been invited to some of the most remote places in South Africa by women, black women, who have formed book clubs where they read novels and mostly in English, but sometimes you go to a place called Kuadkwa, they will be reading a novel in Sesotho, for instance. And if they know that as a writer, you are available, maybe even via Twitter and so on, they, they, they invite you over there. And then, so you find that the whole of South Africa is not, it's not just the, the elite, you know, in Johannesburg and Pretoria, the educated people and all that. Right up to, you know, the village, uh, the, the, the village housewife, the village school teacher in Butterworth, in Transkai, or, or places like that. So there is a lot of, of reading, and a lot of it happens through these book clubs. A lot of our books are bought by, by, by book club members. You see? Um, so, that's one myth then, you know, uh, that one would, would, would like to dispose of altogether. A lot of writers, well, when they know that you are available, they invite you to, to since I have actually made myself available, they know that, oh, we can invite that, that guy sometimes, well, for no fee at all. I mean, it's a village, a book club, you know. I go there uh, because I enjoy talking about my work with readers, especially readers who are not going to analyze it as academics and so on. You know, yeah, I see. I do, of course, enjoy debating it with academics as well. Mm. Um. Uh, one more question. Yes, oh. <laughs> you are quite welcome because no, no one else. I seem to be hogging the mic. Yes. But um, so what would be your inspiration in terms of uh, the African authors, let's say? What inspires you or what would you um, advocate we should be reading as young people, sort of in terms of the African authors out there? Oh, I'm inspired by many authors. Yeah. And your One favorite. of them is right here, uh, KLM. In fact... I love her work so much that uh, at the last uh, festival where, uh, which I attended in Berlin, uh, instead of reading from my work, I read from, from her work. 
Ese Cajiso Lesejo Molope. I don't know if you, you guys uh, know or you have, you have heard of her. I would, I would recommend her novels. I, I would highly recommend them, definitely. But then there, there, there are many, I mean, there, there are many new young writers um, in South Africa um, whose work, I mean, um, by the way, what, what's Carol's name? Carol, the Ma name she uses in her writing. Mashiko. Uh, Mashiko, yes. There is Mohali uh, Mashiko, for instance. Why I forget that name? Because that's her pen name, you see. Um, who also, I mean, has, has, has written. Um, in Nigeria, my, my very favorite, favorite writer is Chinelo Oparanta. I don't know if you, you might be familiar with, with, with that writer. Well, of course, you, Von Vera, I mean, is, is forever in as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, you, you, Von Vera, who, about whom we, we are, I mean, you know, as you heard, there's, have you heard of you, Von Vera, uh, in her honor? I don't know if, have, have you heard of you, Von Vera, no? She passed on. A, a, a few years back. She was from Zimbabwe. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, thank you, Brazix. You've been so gracious. Thanks for mentioning my work. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <right here>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, Yvonne Vera and I actually, incidentally, we have the same publisher in Canada. Um, well, what I wanted to ask you was, I was very curious about you talking about um, this concept of dignity with the Dinka people yes. and how it's, it's so central to a child's upbringing. Yes. Um, and now I was in my mind trying to compare it to Boto, the way exactly. we're taught Boto yes. when we grow up. And I'm wondering what the key differences would be because it, it appears in my head as something like dignity. But it seems like you're talking about something different. It seems like in your research, you're finding something different. Is that true? Well, you know, Bhutu, Ubuntu. Uh, there might be elements of, of, of dignity there, but not quite, because Bhutu really focuses on two things two values, compassion and generosity. That is why in Sesotho, we will say, una lebotu. Kapa, or we will say, kimotu. In other words, he is a person, he is human. And when you, why, if we say, umotu, in other words, you are human, is because you have been generous to that person. We have shown some compassion. Then we, we, we equate that with personhood, Ubuntu. You see that? If we have been a very lousy uh, human being, we'll say Hasimutu. You are not human. In fact, in its original, you know, uh, 
in religious aspects. The, the belief is that we are not born human. You see, we are born, we are just like any animal, a dog, a sheep, or, or, or something. Be, be, becoming you, human is a process. You are made human by others. How do they make you human? By bestowing you with generosity and with compassion. The more they become generous to you and they become compassionate to you, the more human you become. And then you are able to share that generosity and compassion with others. You see that? Only then do you become human. That's why we are able to say, you are not a person. You know, even though you think you are a human being, you are not a person. We think you have not been made human enough. And therefore, you lack generosity and compassion. Whereas with them, dignity, it may entail things like that. But it is mostly, you know, how you carry yourself about. That's why they talk of it in terms of an aesthetic, the aesthetic of dignity. It manifests itself in the way your teeth are. You know, they are bright and shining in the way you walk, in the way you carry yourself about, but also in the way you are today. So elements of it, they have both, you know, Ubuntu in them. But elements of it are more on the aesthetic, you see, the way you walk and the way you dance. All that shows dignity, the way you treat your cattle, you see. It, 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 it entails all of that. Mm. Thank you. There, 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 there's another question there. All right, good afternoon. Hello. Um, yeah, I learned something new today. I didn't know that you paint, so I'm no one ever talks about the paintings. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, self-publishing. I don't know if you've got some thoughts or opinion on self-publishing, specifically in South Africa, within South Africa, challenges. You think it's growing? Any thoughts? As an open question. Do you have any specific question on self-publishing? Because it's, 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 it's so broad that... Uh, Well, uh, there was a time when self-publishing was despised. It was even called vanity publishing, you know, because uh, people believe that if a work has not gone through publishers, editors, designers, and things like that, uh, it was not really worth the time of the day because, you know, it's not been validated by somebody that, yes, it's worth publishing. So, that attitude st still prevails in some quarters. For instance, in the academic world, you know, when you self-publish, that work is not recognized, even for your promotion, if you want to get tenure or something like that, <laughs> as a professor or whatever, you know. Self-published work, works are not recognized. Um, 
But I'm not one of those who, who, who despise self-publishing. Self I think that when it's well done, there are great works, you know, that I have read, which are self-published. In South Africa particularly, as you might know, self-publishing is thriving there, precisely because the government has funds that it gives to people who want to self-publish. You, you see that? They, they, they can apply and get money to publish their own books. And as a result, there are many books that have been self-published, many of them which are rubbish, but also some which are great, you see, that may be rejected by conventional publishers. Why? Because they are not the conventional kind of work. You know, they are very experimental, but very beautiful, very wonderful. So I've seen works like those. I do encourage people who want to self-publish to, to go ahead, but the problem is distribution. In many cases, when you self-publish, you do not have, I mean, the means to dis distribute your books to all over, uh, that distribute books for self-published uh, writers. But even those agencies, they are very selective because they can't just carry stock of any rubbish that, that they come across, you know. They are very selective uh, because they want to carry books that at least will sell. So those are some of the pitfalls then of, of, of self-publishing. I myself have self-published before. For instance, after I published a book called The Sculptors of Mapungubwe, a few months later, I had a novel called Rachel's Blue. And of course, no publisher wanted, my publisher couldn't publish it immediately. They just published the sculptors of, so they said, no, no, give us a year or two so that this one should sell first, you know, before you, you, you can pile on us with another one. So I decided that because this novel, I've written it already, why would it just sit there? So I published it on Kindle. You see that? Uh, this Amazon uh, online uh, thing. So it was on Kindle, selling there, you know, for the, a whole year before it was picked up by another publisher, by a conventional uh, publisher. So I found self-publishing useful in that case, in my case. And also, I mean, I know some established writers who do self-publish online sometimes. One of the most reputable one, Stephen King, uh, for instance, you know, would publish you know, uh, some of his work online, and people buy it directly, you know, uh, uh, from there. It's very easy these days, especially if you're just doing an e-book, you know, to, to, to publish uh, online with, with minimal uh, expenses on your part. Um, are there more questions, comments? Uh, I guess while waiting for someone to come up with something, um, yes, 
you are, you are mostly known for your works in English. Yes. Uh, how much do you write or invest uh, in uh, vernacular languages in South Africa? First of all, I would rather we don't call them vernacular. Um, I, I know that's what we call them in South Africa and in Zimbabwe, you see. But it's, it's, it's a very terrible term, that one. If you go to your dictionary, you'll see why. Um, I do. No, no, no. I don't now. I used to. My early writing is, in fact, my very first published work was in the Isikosa language. And then from the Eastern Cape, then we moved to, to Lesotho, where I was still quite young. And then I wrote in Sesotho. So some of my plays would be, especially in theater for development, would be done uh, in Sesotho and so on. But the more I moved away, you know, because when you are a refugee, you move from one place to another and all that. I, there came a time when I couldn't write, you know, in, liter, in, in a literary Isikosa. I still remained speaking Isikosa, you know, uh, but conversational Isikosa, not the literary one that, uh, you know. Um, so the constant has always been English when we move from one place to another. So even when I started writing again then, you know, writing my plays, it was in English. Now, of course, because I'm a professional writer, it's mostly, or not mostly actually, it's all the time in English for commercial reasons, because I earn a living from my writing. I'm not just writing it for fun. It's, it's a livelihood. So I write in the language of the market. But then a lot of my work is in South Africa. They translate it in all the 11 languages. You see that? So fortunately, even though I'm not an expert in Sitsonga, in, in for instance, or Sivenda, I have books that are in those languages that people read. The translation from English to Tsonga or Venda, uh, um, how, do you, how do you think we should elevate the conversation? Well, you see, in, in South Africa, it happens because it is supported by, by government. There are, there's money budgeted, you see, for that. There's money budgeted. Mostly, it would work better if a lot of that money, and that's the objective, for translating some of the books that are in Sesotho, Sitsonga, or in the indigenous languages into into English so as to reach other markets. But once in a while when they think that, for instance, my plays, they said, well, there's a very big shortage of theatrical works in the other languages. So let's translate this guy's plays, all of them, into all the official languages. That was the reasoning behind that. So they translated all those then into, into, into those languages. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, hi. Hi, Prasdeks. Hi. I'm Tokozani. Uh, I just have a comment, you know, the Zulus in New York, because when I also studied and lived here, 
it was very difficult for me to adjust and leaving my Zuluness out of it, I couldn't, you know, I had to like educate and I find that um, the problems that I was having with American people, um, uh. it was very hard for them to understand me and because of my accent, so they just switch off and it's like they make you feel stupid or, or whatever, but I was like, I'm not going to change my accent or change anything because that's what... I have as a Zulu here. I don't want to lose that because now I'm in New York and keeping it with me was what I had. And yeah, so it's a very powerful that when I saw the title of the book, The Zulus of New York, I was like, yeah, I was once a Zulu in New York myself. So. Okay, <laughs> you, you are the Zulu of, of New York. Well, I mean, when it comes to accent, I mean, you, you, I, I've been here for 40 years because I came here 81, almost 40 years, you know. Uh, but, 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 you know, there, there, there you are, you know. Um, there was never any attempt on my part, you know, to ado adopt a, a, another accent and so But then even if I tried, it would fail, <laughs> you see, because some of us showed it hard. Yeah? Do, do, do you see that? Yes. Anyway, that, that's interesting. Um, any more comments, questions? We still have five more minutes. Um, oh, okay. Yes, according to the, to the scripted timetable, we still have five minutes. But, but we, yes, anyway. Someone? Hello. Unjan. That is long overdue. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yazid, I'm going to launch here again, is there. In other words, when I've struck a deal with, with an American publisher to publish here. So I would have to launch it again here with, with, with the hard copy. But you don't have to wait for, 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 for the hard copy. You can buy the online book in the meantime. The, the online one. Oh, okay. When are you going home, by the way? When are you going home? We are Ninekai. Are you exhibiting here as well? No, no, I mean now. Are you, are you exhibiting something here? Seven Zayan Richardson Gallery, which is in Chelsea, huh. uh, 22nd West. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Ah, you see, I'll be gone that time. It's a pity. I'm going to miss that. No, Masugala, I'm going to Ohio tomorrow morning. Okay. Yes. Okay. No, so fit up. Okay. Okay. No, that's great. That's one of our greatest artists in South Africa. Hmm.
Any more yeah, comments are still welcome. Questions? Um, if not, then I will ask you to help me thank uh, Zex Mda for uh, agreeing to celebrate with me uh, and all of us um, the legacy of, I don't know if you say this, but I found it online. Yeah. Uh, in another interview, you said uh -huh. that you won't Vera is the love of my life. So that our what? Uh, you won't Vera is the love of my life. Oh uh, my goodness! When you are talking about inspi inspiration, uh. when you are talking about like writers that have inspired you, um, and so uh. I'm yeah I'm really honoured that you had uh, you uh. had time to sit with us and reflect uh, on your contributions, uh, okay. on the connections between your works, and also just talking about your new novel. So uh -huh. thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you.